and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, episode 64. We misinformed you last week. We said it was episode 62. It was episode 63 last week. Uh, but we're back, and the Mets have a new manager, Sam Lebowitz, Jack Hendon, not your Mets managers. We are nope. your, your co-hosts of this year podcast that you're listening to. Now the manager is Buck Showalter. Buck and Showalter, yes. We've got takes. We've got opinions. I think we're both. I mean, we've talked about Buck yeah. the, the la- at least the last episode or two. Like, yeah. we, I mean, not much of my opinions changed. It's like, okay, now, I mean, I'll just jump straight in. I mean, I'll, I'll let you, first yeah. of all, uh, how you doing, Jack? Oh, I'm great. I'm done with finals. So there's no more, uh, there's no more pain here. The COVID numbers are kind of scaring me. Everybody get your boosters. Try and get tested if you can. Um, that's my, that's my spiel. Um, oh yeah. I'm, I'm know. going, I'm going through my own COVID scare right now. I'm home from school and hoping and being careful around my family. Cause my roommate tested positive right as I was getting out of there. It's uh, a lot of fun when you, you finish everything, uh, you know, from a, from an institution that you're trapped at and then you go home to enjoy your holiday and you can't do anything because everybody's sick. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, highlight of the week for me i saw spider-man that was cool uh yeah was it i i, I haven't i seen won't spoil yet. i won't spoil anything um but i mean spider-man canonically a mets fan in the marvel comics and in in the right. mcu so um that was a I, I really enjoyed the movie okay he actually gets bullied there's a there's a scene in this deleted scene in the spider-man movies where before he uh while he's still peter parker he gets bullied for being a mets fan and they they relentlessly mock him for uh uh you know his his uh let's see what would be what would be something that like like toby Maguire in like 2003 would get mocked for as a met fan like he really thought they were going to sign a rod he, he really, really thought yeah yeah and they, they that's right the flash put him in a locker and he he told him um he he he, he yeah it was you should check it out look it up look it's it's it really happened it's really true i yes uh it's not but uh, there is a Mets reference in the movie. The Mets do get mentioned in the movie by name. So Ooh. keep that in mind. But, it's about I mean, the Mets, baby. Love the Mets. That one, right? That one. <laughs> I like to think it was an allusion to that meme, but I, yeah. it, it was probably written in the script long before that. Regardless right. of Spider-Man Walter. being a Mets fan, Buck Showalter is going to manage Spider-Man's favorite team in 2022. Um, as I sort of alluded to, if you want like our initial opinions about Buck Showalter, you can go to previous episodes where we talk about it. Uh, Cause it seemed certainly that this was his job to lose. Um, and, and that kind of came to fruition. I mean, the, there was a report that he had his second interview. I believe that was on Friday. Uh, yeah. And then on Saturday, they announced that he had the job. Steve Cohen, obviously, he announced it himself over Twitter. He couldn't keep the excitement to himself over the weekend, despite initial plans to uh, reveal this uh, on Monday. Um, so we found out about this on Saturday. It's whatever. I I like to think they did their due diligence with the other candidates, with Cotraro and Espada, who I believe both had second interviews as well. Uh, and they went well. That's what I'd read was that. They both, uh, they both actually seemed to, to have good interviews, which is, I mean, it, wouldn't, it doesn't totally surprise me. They were both 
great candidates to have in your second round. But yeah, but I think I think we both knew that Steve had circled Buck as his guy from the get go here, and that that Buck Showalter had a very uh, had had a lower barrier to cross over. Yeah. He had a lower threshold to cross in order to get this job than any other candidate. Uh, as long as he didn't walk into the room and screw up, um, you know, as long as he put together a decent interview, it was going to be really hard for Steve Cohen to change his mind. So uh, an analogy that I've used is that, you know, if this was a pole vaulting competition to get the Mets managerial job for Buck, the bar was one foot off the ground for a spot in Cotraro. It was, it was pretty high up. They had to use the, the pole vault bar. All Buck had to do was step over it. If he tripped on it, job wasn't going to be his, but he didn't. All Buck uh, had to do was not mention Steve's insider trading history and he was going to get the job, I think. Like, Steve wanted him, so he got him. Um, yeah, I really, hope it's, it's, I really hope it's more nuanced than that. Like, I hope right. that, that there were certain things they were looking for Buck to say, maybe about, maybe he had changed opinions on analytics or he was more open to it now. And as soon as he said something to that effect, they were like, all right, sign him up. Um, it, it's we're going to see how this works. Uh, Buck Showalter is a beloved figure across baseball. You talk to any Orioles fan, Allison McKeg, what's up? Uh, they love Buck Showalter as a man. They, they adore him. He came in to that Orioles team. We talked about it last week. He was the third manager in that season when he first came in and they played very well under him down the stretch. And then the next season, uh, or was it two seasons after there was a, there was kind of a learning curve season. And then they, they yeah. wound up, uh, yeah. a, a, a playoff team under Buck. Uh, he turned that, that franchise around pretty quickly, had a couple of playoff finishes with him. Of course, now his most well-known managerial decision is leaving his elite best reliever in baseball, Zach Britton in the bullpen, in the wildcard game, while Ubaldo Jimenez gave up a walk-off home run to Edouard, uh, Edwin Encarnacion in Toronto in the uh, 2015 wildcard game. Um, you know, he is beloved. And uh, some players have come out and voiced support for, for Showalter since the Mets really started zeroing in on him. Adam Jones, who is just a great dude, yeah. uh, loved playing under Buck and made it very clear that he loved playing under Buck. Um, he he tweeted about it on, on Twitter and he uh, I believe phoned into MLB network um, earlier this week and, and voiced his uh, his support of Buck. There were rumors that both Max Scherzer and I believe Francisco Lindor were lobbying for him to get the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those, those two guys have some pull. Yeah. Um, and then you look at the experience. He's got three managerial stops in his career the Yankees, the Rangers, and then the Orioles. Kind of a similar trajectory to Terry Collins before he landed in New York um, with one thing that he has that Collins didn't have is experience managing in New York. Um, Obviously, Showalter had a few seasons with the Yankees. Wound up, I found this out in researching him, actually. He did not get fired from the Yankees after the 1995 season he resigned because George Steinbrenner was trying to get him to fire his hitting coach. He wanted to replace his hitting coach. Uh, and, and Buck stood up for his hitting coach and said, well, if you want him gone, then I'm gone. Yeah. Uh, and resigned, which opened the door for Joe Torrey and created the Yankees dynasty. Basically. I mean, who knows if they would have had the same success under Showalter, but 
Um, it's it's happened twice for Buck where he left the stop and then wound up, uh, you know, they wound up winning the World Series the year after. I said three stops. There's four stops. I think I forgot to mention the Diamondbacks in there. Same thing happened with them. He left after 2000 in Arizona. They won the World Series in 2001. Um, he's, yeah, uh, I've been rambling. Uh, but Buck is very, very well respected. He's been in this game a long time. He's 65 years old. Um, people seem to love playing for him. But the decision-making, the old-schoolness of it all uh, is a little stinky for me. I just need to see proof uh, that he's going to be much more open to incorporating the data that the Mets are going to put in front of him because I'm sure they're going to put data in front of him because the Mets have built up their research and development, their analytics department, a lot. They're up over 30 employees when not long ago they had (coughs) – excuse me, they had – what like six yeah that's it was six yeah and now with ben zosmer heading up that that department he's one of the smartest analytical minds in baseball and he's very very well regarded he's not even 30 years old yet so we saw the fruits of it at points last season especially defensively Mm -hmm. uh this positional adjustment shifting that has become all the rage the mets finally started incorporating it this kind of pitch to pitch adjustment based on hitters and and pitchers and how uh, the data says that you should play these guys, play your player defenders instead of the traditional defensive alignment, straight up double play depth, guard the lines, the horseshoe shift, stuff like that. So if Buck is going to be more a traditional shifter, Mets might be in some trouble for some, you know, defensive regression, but if he's more open to it now, you got to remember the Orioles were, also very much behind the times in terms of analytics when he was there probably wasn't a whole lot of data even put it being put in front of him um maybe he'll buy in this time yeah hopefully i think the other component that you mentioned that's also going to be important um because it's something that's been very very contingent i think for us and our i think like division of mets fans who aren't totally sold on buck um i don't really know if this is a situation where i trust Buck Showalter to just pick out his coaching staff. Um, I think the Mets need to be, as a front office, they need to be extremely proactive in at least getting a forward-thinking bench coach and a forward-thinking hitting coach in there. Yeah. Um, you can't, I, I listen, I'm totally sympathetic to what Buck experienced under George Steinbrenner in 95. Like I'm sure that Steinbrenner was a couple steps over the line in terms of how he conducted himself. I mean, that everybody I think who knows George Steinbrenner knows that, but um, it's something that ultimately a lot of front offices are really pushing for. You can't, you, you, you need a, a, a hitting coach that's going to incorporate data. Um, Chili Davis being here for three years is a perfect example of why uh, it pays and in fact, it really costs you on the other end of it to not be on with the data, to just not look at it. Because as soon as you get rid of the anti-data guy, you are in purgatory and you have like absolutely nothing. Um, so that's one thing in particular that I hope the Mets are smart enough to, to sort of enforce on their own. Um, I think the other thing too, though, that you mentioned that's important is that the two of us have both, I think, warmed up to the idea of Buck like in a clubhouse. This is very different from Tony La Russa um, coming in with the White Sox, where you knew you were bringing in like an ego who had baggage, who 
you know, people had enjoyed not having to deal with in baseball for a while. This is a little bit more along the lines of like a Dusty Baker hire um, in terms of the, the kind of respect that this manager has um, in terms of, you know, despite being so-called, you know, being quote unquote behind the times. Again, we'll see that if that's true or not. I mean, Terry Collins, it's funny you mentioned Terry. There was a huge backlash that I didn't even understand growing up when the Mets hired Terry Collins because he lost his last job managing the Anaheim Angels because his team petitioned to get him fired. Buck Showalter has never had to endure that. He's never had a team petition to get rid of him. So automatically, I think this is like a much better, optically, this is a much better hire than what it was when they hired Terry. I mean, it's kudos, also, kudos hmm? to Terry in that case because players love playing for him here. For the right. Most part. I mean, well, the pitchers didn't. I think there was through, there through. were there were some hit pieces on Terry's way out that were very, I think, salient. And uh, you know, that's not to say he wasn't worth it. I think the players who went to the World Series with Terry think that Terry is a huge reason that they did it. Um, you know, he probably also did his changing, but I don't think Buck needs to change in that department, which is a very good thing. Um, I also just with the way that this news came out. I do have my qualms with the process because it's not really in line with what I expected when Steve Cohen first assumed an ownership role with the team. And what I mean by that is that first off, he announced it himself over Twitter. He couldn't wait until the weekend, which like, again, you know, this is a, this is a professional, you know, organization with plans and reasons why they set things up to announce them on certain days. I don't really like that, but that's small potatoes. The bigger issue here is that Steve Cohen really wanted Buck Showalter. So Buck Showalter is now managing the Mets and you don't really have any uh, explanation or real insight as to what the front office wanted in this. When Steve first took over, I think something he made a big point of that we were especially relieved to hear was that he was going to let the baseball people make those baseball decisions. He was not going to uh metal this seems a little bit like meddling if it if it goes badly too it's going to read we're going to be reading articles about how steve pushed for something that the front office really didn't want because there are always those pieces that come out as soon as things hit the fan like they did last year um i think we're we are running a bit of a risk um on that front i really really wish this had been a decision that sandy alderson billy epler and Ben Zosmer had been like the foremost uh, enforcers of, but again, like it is what it is. I don't think Buck's terrible. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try it. Like I get it. And I'm sure that a lot of fans who want an experienced manager are thrilled to be getting that. I think on the whole, this is a positive thing with a lot of contingencies. And I think the contingency now that has come up for me, because we've talked to a bench coach and we've talked about shifting and we've talked about, you know, uh, cooperating with the data I also want to know that like it's the front office that's going to be you know the liaison here and not Steve Cohen because really one group of people knows a lot more than the other and I'd like to I'd, I'd like for them to have their input too so that's just a, a, a new thing that's come out of this for me yeah. I don't like that this is becoming like that this is being framed as Steve Pro Steve's process and that that's a good thing because if you know and again Front office, very different now than it was four or five years ago with the Wilpons. We're more analytically inclined. 
um, we're more competent in that regard. Like I get it and we're more willing to spend money and that's great. Um, and those are things that differentiate Steve Cohen from the Wilpons. However, people would have been pissed off if, four, if three years ago after Callaway got fired or two years ago after, after Mickey Callaway got let go and Jeff Wilpon really wanted uh, Buck Showalter and they got Buck Showalter, people would have been pissed and they would have been right to be pissed. And I think that's something just to think about. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'll, I'll address the coaching staff stuff in, in a second because I, I do have things to add to that. But I agree completely. And it's, it goes to what I was saying about how Buck had a much lower bar to, to, to cross here to get this job is that Steve wanted him. I mean, there was, I mean, we've, we've gotten reports that there was some dissent in the, among the, the top staff of the Mets that I think Cotraro was Sandy's guy. Um, there was some differing of opinions about who, who should get, you know, who wanted who. Um, but it was always clear from the get-go that Steve wanted Buck. I mean, Steve Steve wanted a name. Steve wanted someone who had managerial experience. I mean, uh, there is a misconception that managerial experience means good manager. I mean, uh, yes, he's managed at four stops, but, I mean, Buck Showalter is a lifetime 507 winning percentage as a manager. I know that is weighed down slightly. He managed some bad teams at the end of his Orioles tenure. Um and he often started taking over for teams when they were still bad, but he's never won a game in the championship series. He's advanced past the American league division series once and he got swept and that was with the Orioles. Um, so he, he has, you know, a dozen or so playoff games he's managed. Then he has managed good baseball teams. Um, but it goes to show that just cause you have, you know, a thousand some odd games of managerial experience. Is that enough? You know, is that, is that enough to say this is going to be the answer here? I know we just came off two consecutive rookie managers who did not have managerial experience. Callaway had no managerial experience at any level. Rojas had minor league managerial experience. And you could argue the merits of Rojas in the situation he was in, he was not, I don't think, as bad a manager as Callaway. And I think there was an argument that could have been that he didn't need to go this offseason. Um, I've also made the argument in reverse of that. I think that it was completely fair to get a fresh face in here. Uh, and it is, un is unfortunate that someone is respected in the organization who's been here as long as he has and Rojas uh, is now crossed out uh, and kind of got the boot. Um, but yeah, the process here, there is something a little fishy that we both recognize that you know, less than 24 hours after Buck's second interview with Steve Cohen at Cohen's house with Sandy and, and Epler in Connecticut, uh, we had a contract signed. Less than 24 hours. We had monetary figures for a manager. That is not, like, there's something a little weird there. That almost feels to me that this, you know, 90 minute interview that Buck Showalter had in Connecticut, I think that was reported that each, each right. interview was roughly 90 minutes with all three candidates, uh, was more a negotiation than, uh, than an actual interview. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's, it's just like, there's, and also I think like there's so much pomp and circumstance around it that like, I get that there's a lockout and you can't sign players right now, but like, this is not signing Max Scherzer. This is not trading for Francisco Lindor. Like, you found your manager, you know, like it's December. You, you found him on December 18th. That's kind of late. 
Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I think that because Steve Cohen has his guy, it's like, it's Steve winning again, like that whole narrative, but really like, there's a lot that needs to continue to be done. And I know that the lockout, like, you know, stalls that I'm not saying I'm not going to get pissed that the Mets are doing nothing when it's impossible to do anything, but like the team is, I think still, uh, I think last year's team is still better than this current group that they have, and they're going to need to finish it off. Yeah. Is it a good place to transition? Sir. I, I did want to touch on the bench. Yeah. Um, yes. Because I agree with you completely. I think if you give Buck full control over who he hires here, um, that's probably the wrong way to go about it for the rest of his coaching staff because Buck had the same bench coach his entire tenure in Baltimore. It was John Russell. Uh, and no offense to John Russell. I don't want John Russell to be my bench coach. No, no, I don't want John Russell as my bench. That's like, that's, yeah, that's it's got to be someone smarter than that. Yeah. So, okay, if we're going to assume for a second the Mets are still going to use data at least in a in a, a pretty forward thinking pretty modern approach kind of manner in terms of the rest of the league um, maybe not the top of the pack like we hope they're going to be but definitely not the bottom tier anymore uh you know at least similar to how they were last year somebody needs to be the conduit for that data to the players and I, a good forward thinking manager your kevin cashes your bob melvins your uh, Craig councils are really good at explaining to players in terms the players will understand and like why certain decisions are being made and why certain things need to be done with how they play the game. Um, again, referencing that Bob Melvin was an old school type thinker until the A's sat him down and said, this is going to work. We need you to buy in and he bought in and he was great at it. Yeah. Uh, about, about communicating with his players about why decisions were being made. If Buck is not capable of being that guy, and he very well might not be, he's up there in age. He's been around the game for a long time. This stuff is all probably very foreign to him. Uh, I don't think he's ever managed a particularly analytically friendly team because he managed in the nineties and the early two thousands where no one was particularly inclined in this manner. Then he managed the Orioles, who had a comparable R&D department to where the Mets were before Cohen. Uh, So this stuff is all probably very foreign to him. So if it's not going to be him who understands at least how to explain it to the players, it's got to be his deputy. It's got to be his lieutenant. It's got to be his bench coach. So you need someone on the bench sitting next to him who's got the data in hand and can help inform some decisions maybe a quality control coach, but you need someone on that bench who is well-regarded in this role. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know who that's going to be, but if you just pick up an ex catcher with some managerial experience, who's also in his sixties, like where, where, what's changed, you know, what's different from, you know, Dave Jouse, what's, what's changed. Yeah. Um, And that's, and I would also, I think add like, it's okay if, uh you want to prioritize experience there like some people are saying that carlos beltran should be the bench coach i don't really know if that's like in an applied understanding that you're that you're bringing and supplementing uh for buck because he probably isn't in that same um you know in-game mode of thinking that you know someone like and i don't think this isn't me saying that the Mets should make bob garen bench coach again but i 
I think Bob Guerin worked really well with Terry Collins because he also could, he knew how to manage and he knew numbers. I would love Bob Guerin because I'd be okay with Bob Guerin. I think like Will Venable or like Clayton McCullough or someone like that would probably be a little bit better just because they seem to be getting interviewed by smarter teams, but Sure, Garen. If I don't really know why Garen would make that lateral move from the Dodgers, so that's the thing because he's now with the you know he's the Dodgers bench coach, and I think his position there is just probably a lot more stable than it would be with the Mets. Um, yeah, I just I'm saying if it happens, I wouldn't complain because he's a great bench coach under Terry Collins, and I yeah. think really elevated Terry's managerial ability uh, in in 2015. So yeah, um, but that said, you're right. Team is not complete. And we're not just talking coaching roles. There are things this team needs to do when the lockout ends, hopefully relatively shortly after the new year, but that's optimistic at best. What do we got to do, Jack? Well, uh, I, I really think it's just three areas at this point. Um, you know, Scherzer is a great compliment behind Jacob deGrom, but you still have a little bit, of, of sanding over to do with that rotation because your number three starter right now is either Carlos Carrasco or Taiwan Walker. And you're probably asking Tyler McGill or David Peterson to anchor it. I don't really think that's a winning scenario. So you have the starting rotation. The bullpen hasn't really been touched yet at all. We talked a lot about how with good R and D you can just find guys for cheap and they can just be great setup men. And I think that's important. Um, but you're, you know, you're going to need somebody because Jerry's familia is gone. Um, and honestly, I'm not totally sure how much I trust Seth Lugo and Edwin Diaz in, in high leverage roles. I think that kind of hurt the team a little bit towards the end of the year. Um, and you also need to replace Javi Baez because he's gone. And Eduardo Escobar is not a replacement for Javi Baez. He's a replacement for Jonathan VR um, or a supplement to Jeff McNeil. But he's not Javi's replacement here. So you need a bat. You need a bat, you need to finish your rotation, and you need to start crack, you need to get cracking at the bullpen. I think those are the three things. As far as which one is most important, I would think it's replacing Baez. Um, I think that conceivably your rotation, because really when I think about this, I think about where the team was in like August when they were gasping for air, their pitching was totally depleted, and their offense was lifeless, and they were playing pretty good teams and getting embarrassed. And I think the thing that really turned the tide for that brief moment in that last month or so of the season was when Javi Baez started hitting. It's a very small sample to draw from. um, But I think if you want to apply this, this mold that you have with this team and try and run back the things that went well, you need to start by finding a thumper. Um, Really the only ones left are like Carlos Correa and Chris Bryant, um, so and Trevor Story, but like you gotta, you gotta get someone. I, I I see what you're saying, and I agree with you to a point. I disagree on the bat being the most important part. I think you gotta find innings, like badly. Yeah. You gotta find innings. Like you need to shore this up. You cannot have McGill or Peterson in your starting rotation on opening day, I think that that's really, really important that you shore up the rotation and you find a guy who can give you 160 to 180 half-decent innings. Innings good enough 
that you can get by, you know, because Carrasco might get hurt. Scherzer might get hurt. DeGrom might get hurt. God forbid on all three. Taiwan Walker might flame out again in the second half. Who, who knows? I, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, we're going to run through a list in a moment. We're going to bring back a segment from last year, from last off season. Uh, and we're going to do some hot or not on some free agents. Um, bats included as well as starting pitching. We don't have any relievers. Cause I think you and I are both kind of in agreement here that uh, relievers are pretty easy to find for the most part. And yeah. if you're, I'm not shelling out, like I'm not paying an inordinate amount of money for like, you know, Craig Kimbrell. Right? I mean, he's we've... the free agent, right? No, he's he's got another year with the White Sox. I, I think you and I are both. Oh, is that... okay. I think you and I yeah. are both in agreement that like if they go out on the free agent market, it's got to be a left-hander, and it's probably got to be Andrew Chafin, who we want. Um, yeah, I like him. So we'll we'll both put a hot on Andrew Chafin. Let's do that. But yeah. uh, let's do hot or not. Basically very simple game you probably played it with uh with girl you know in in middle school talking about um the people in your middle school grade uh whether you found them attractive or not whatever when you were in eighth grade i didn't but that's okay i that's that's it's not about me we're gonna do a little tinder here you know swiping yes swiping no hot or not we're gonna you know talk about a player and we're gonna see whether we agree if they're hot or not basically by saying hot or not is whether we think the Mets should have acquire them via free agency um the first we'll start with some starting pitchers and then we'll move into the bats carlos rodon coming off an all-star season in which he had a very similar trajectory to tyon walker left-hander for the white Sox, started great through a no hitter uh not so good in the second half some injury problems lost some velocity um not qualified that is a very important part of Carlos Rodon. You had me for a second because I thought you were going to say not, but you, but then you were like not qualified. I, I think I, I'm, I'm a hot on Rodon. I think. I think I am too. I, the injury concerns are concerning to me. Likewise with uh, the whole, you know, the Taiwan Walker problem where because he had been hurt so much in previous years, he just didn't have the stamina built up to pitch effectively for a full season. Uh, I don't like the idea of having two of those guys in my rotation, but yeah. I think he's probably got the best stuff of any actual starting pitcher available. And I think that because he's not a qualified free agent, the upside here is worth the risk. Yeah. I think the other component too, um, when we talk about injuries, especially to pitchers is the fact that like major league baseball basically got exposed for changing the ball in the middle of the year because the pitchers were just doing too, too bloody well with it and they had to make changes. Um, so that's something that I think like you go into next year with a new CBA, new terms are established. I'm not totally sure if like we're going to see those problems again, if it's just the same baseball, I think for most pitchers, it's going to be that way. I'm sure that, you know, played some kind of role in Jacob deGrom going under the way he did as well. Um, it's something that hasn't gotten nearly as much coverage as it should, especially since we are in the middle of a lockout. I thought it was really terrible that they did that. And I think it definitely compromised numbers on pitchers like Rodon, who really need a certain environment to work uh, and to be healthy. I think you look at his percentile rankings, like you look at Savant, 
it's a lot different in 2021 than it was in 19 or 18, or even in the, in the short in 2020 season, like he's figured out a way to, 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 I think, locate his fastball and to actually get spin on it. Um, those are things that usually speak to just like a new approach as a pitcher and teams all across the league are going to look at that and they're going to say, you know, their, their eyes are going to light up because they're going to realize they have somebody that they can just bring in um, and work with further. It's almost akin to not entirely because Kevin Gosman's splitter was like a disgusting pitch. And I don't really know if Ronan has a Gosman splitter, but, um, or anything of the sort, but you look at someone with that kind of trajectory, who's a free agent and and can be had for fairly cheap. I think you need to strike it. I think he's, and he's also, what also works here is that he's probably better. I think he, he would be better next year than Carlos Carrasco would, even in a, in a, in a bad outcome situation. I think that He's probably more likely to, to hold up across a whole year. Um, his stuff plays really well. I think, especially with a, a long, an infield that the Mets have, you know, you would never have to deal with like the risk of him just giving up too many hits. I don't see, and he's, and like you said, he's the best one available. I think among free agents, he's absolutely the best available. Frankie Montas and, and Sonny Gray are two guys who you could conceivably trade for who might be better, but. I think Rodon is as good as it gets as far as guys you can just sign right now, especially guys you can sign without losing a draft pick. Um, I'm once again saying Chris Bassett is in that group as well. Uh, Let's move on to the next guy. Um, Less of a slam dunk, another left-hander who was let go by the Mariners or declined an opt uh, had a, he declined a, his option. He declined his option. He shock. Like he walked away from money that the Mariners, I don't think wanted to really give him. We're talking, you say Kikuchi, um, kind of a fastball cutter guy, a uh, breaking ball dude in there too, left-hander. Uh, weird case. Cause there was some hype around him coming over from Japan. And he really just has been bad. Yeah. Um, but there's been it, it, there's been times where it seems like he might be on the verge of putting it together, and then just completely falls apart. There were, I mean, he had a, a spike in velocity, and then kind of just didn't hold that up. I, there's there's some weirdness going on here with Kikuchi, and and maybe this is a change of scenery type situation where that does him well. Um, he will put up innings for you most likely. Are they quality innings? The numbers are not good. Uh, I think I think I'm a not because I don't yeah. I, I don't think he's good. I I'm a not too. Like I don't I mean the other thing too, when you think about like I mean pitching for the Mariners, he's pitching with he's pitching in an organization that is extracting results from um people who are also struggling to put it together. Uh, I think the best example among the starting pitchers is probably Chris Flexen. Um, and like their profiles are different, right? And we know that like Kikuchi is someone who's really struggled to get the fastball up in the zone. And that's his thing is because it's a, you know, it's, it's a fastball that has like decent velocity to it for a lefty. Um, but he just hasn't gotten those results. I don't really know if it's nearly, I think Rodon's a much safer bet. Um, Again, yeah. it would probably, you know, you probably have to dig in a little bit more financially to make it happen. Um, yeah, but I, I think mean, just in terms of raw ability, it's I think Rodon is a far better option. I think you can get Kikuchi for, for much cheaper than Rodon, but I don't know if it's it's worth it because it, you're getting 
probably getting far less quality. It, your point is pretty valid with the Mariners. They did seem to figure something out with a few pitchers this this year yeah. and over the past couple of years. But so either he's not listening or they just haven't cracked that nut yet. Uh, we're we're both a not in the hot or not on Jusei Kikuchi. Last pitcher, Zach Greinke. Uh, so uh, yeah, uh, I mean, he throws like eighty-seven now. The Astros I mean, you talk were, innings. You talk innings. He's a guarantee <laughs> to give you innings. You would think, but I mean, there's always risk with aging pitchers. Uh, listen, as fun it would as it would be to have the weirdo, enigmatic personality of Zach Greinke on my baseball team the stuff has just dissipated to a point where I'm not sure it's going to be effective for very much longer. And to the point where Dusty Baker was not really trusting him to go and get outs in the playoffs for the Astros. He did not pitch very much in the playoffs for the team that wound up playing in the world series. I I'm, I'm a, I'm a not on it. I just, I, I want some upside if I'm mm-hmm. going to go out and get a guy. Yeah. And I feel like at this point, Zach Granke is just like a right-handed Rich Hill who, yeah, I think that's a pretty good comp, actually. I think, he's actually a guy, yeah. I think he's a guy that will get you some outs and he will provide some innings, but he's not a guy that really can go deep into games anymore. Um, and there's always, always going to, it's like, it's never going to be easy watching him pitch, it feels like, because he throws so softly. Um, that if he starts missing over the middle, he's going to get tattooed. Yeah. Well, okay. So my thing with Zach Greinke is that, like, he's clearly not the pitcher that he was, like, when the Diamondbacks traded him to the Astros. Like, he's not going to be your number three guy. I think in the in the conversation of, like, finishing your rotation the way that it should be finished, you need to do it by – getting someone who can pitch in your third hole and bump everybody else down a level to a place where they probably belong. Um, Granky probably doesn't get that done. So in that respect, I'm, I'm a not, but I also think that there is some upside in using your rotation the way they did when they acquired Rich Hill last year, because of the depth that they ultimately needed. Um, like if you were, to sign like Rodon and then sign Granky, um, you would have a six-man rotation around like Carrasco, Walker, Rodon. And I honestly, I'd even put DeGrom in that category because of how bad that injury seemed to be last year. It takes a lot of weight off of everybody else to have somebody who can, who can do that innings-wise. Then again, they also like, you know, McGill probably moves to the bullpen at that point. Peterson may also move to the bullpen if they don't move him down to Syracuse. And you also have Trevor Williams. So he's a bit redundant. So I'm, I'm a not on Granky, but I'm, I think I'm a little bit more like intrigued by the possibilities with him because the control is a lot better. Like Rich Hill's control was terrible. Zach Granky was 92nd percentile in walk rate this year, which is something that you could conceivably spin the way that the athletics have with Yusmyra Petit, who doesn't strike anybody out and doesn't throw anything particularly hard anymore, but still functions. Like if you get to like January, February, and he's still on the market and he can be had for cheap, I think that it's a perfect opportunity to experiment for one year. So again, not at all a Rodon Kikuchi thing, certainly not Clayton Kershaw. Although Kershaw, I think we both agree, like 
it's either Texas Dodgers or he's done. Like, I don't think he really is looking anywhere else. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. I think I'm, but, I'm with you there. I mean, if, if they fix the rotation elsewhere yeah, and, and Granky's like, Hey, I'll, I'll help out in a utility pitcher kind of role. Sure. I guess as long as he's not asking for too much cash. Uh, yeah. Shall we, shall we move on to the, to the hitters? We yes. got some hitters. We got more hitters here. So we'll yeah. try to run through them a little quicker. Hmm. Um, I think the first one's going to be pretty, pretty slam dunk given the options out on the market. If you're trying to bring in a, a thumper, uh, it probably going to be got to be Chris Bryant, right? I mean, he's a, he's a yeah. pretty easy hot for me. I, uh, yeah. He might be the best hitter that's left. I, well, well, besides Correa. I, oh, and Correa. I, I almost like, I almost just Correa never even comes to mind for me because it's like, they're not signing Correa. Not signing. He's he's going to the Tigers most most likely. Um, I still feel like the Yankees are going to make a late push for him. I know they're saying they're not going to. Whatever. Uh, Bryant, positional versatility doesn't play any position at a high high level, but he can play it competently enough. He can play the corner outfield, even as experienced in center. Although I don't think he'd be seeing much time out, if any time out there. Obviously, can play third, can play some first. Uh, I mean, and he's gonna. He's gonna he's gonna hit a little bit. I know he didn't seem like all of his production for the Giants was against the Mets, um, but he's a guy that is has the highest upside. I think of any guy on this list, barring maybe the guy we're gonna talk about next. Yeah. Uh, I I I like Bryant enough on like a four year deal. I think it's defensible, even though I'm not sure how well that swing ages. Right. Um. But if you're really trying to replace that that right-handed thump that that Bias provided, I think Bryant is your best bet. Yeah, and it also with the outfield thing, you can also consider him as some sort of a of a I think relief or or I guess what's like almost like a uh, it would I think soften the blow of also losing Conforto. Yeah. Um, Again, you're not signing him to do the job of two people, but it probably like gives you some something to work with around while also like incorporating guys like Eduardo Escobar, Jeff McNeil into your lineup in 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 more dynamic ways. Because Brian can play uh, in a lot of different areas, like you said. So I'm hot on him. Nick Castellanos is our next guy. I would love Nick Castellanos. I think he's fun. I think mm-hmm. that he mashes. I th- he is a, a very fly ball prone hitter. I'm not sure how well that profiles the city field and he can't play defense. Yeah. So he's be a DH, which obviously we're, we're thinking we're getting a DH. We but, are. Yeah, we totally are. But we already have like four guys on this team who probably profile best as a DH. Yeah. Cano and Dom Smith and Mark Canna to an extent at I'm sure I'm forgetting at least one. Um, let's see. Cano, Dom, JD. Yeah. Yeah. JD's still on this team. Yeah. yeah JD I is guess. still here. They haven't traded him yet. So, uh, well, they can't at the moment. Oh yeah. Well, I, I don't think they will. I think he's like think our Clint Frazier at this point. Like we just plug him into any trade proposal we have and hope it works. So you're hot on Castellanos. I'm hot on the idea of Castellanos. I'm, I'm not because I don't see there's a way that they could execute it. And I don't think that it's going to happen. They haven't been tied to him at all. Uh, I think he'd be a great fit uh, if they can make it work. 
but I don't think that they can make it work. And I don't think that they want him. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm actually a nod on him. Um, I'm not somebody who believes that like the guy's 2021 was a fluke, right? I think this is to an extent who Nick Castellanos has become. He's a slugger, um, puts the ball in the air, can't play a position. Like you said, um, could be in the league for a very long time. It's just a guy from the right side of the plate who just hits homers. Um, I'm just, I'm really leery of the, the strikeouts and the walks. I don't like where they're at. Uh, he was 25th percentile in walk rate and 15th percentile in whiff rate and fifth percentile in chase rate. I just don't really think it blends well with what this team is trying to incorporate uh, in bringing in guys like Eduardo Escobar and Marcana. Again, yeah. there's the there's always the argument that like you you've already like brought those guys in, so you can afford to have somebody who's going to walk very little, strike out a lot, and probably hit a lot of homers and doubles. But Chris Bryan is right there. Like, I I think that they're very different players. Yeah, there's um, also there's also the argument that Castellanos is not going to perform as well in a different ballpark. Right. I mean, We'll see how this shakes out if he signs in like Miami or something, because I know they have interest in him. But I, I think that I saw some figure a while ago that said Castellanos has like a higher percentage of his like extra base hits and home runs are like in a lower tier of exit velocity, which would indicate that he's just he's hitting the ball just well enough to sneak it mm. out of smaller ballparks like Cincinnati. Yeah. Um. And then you put him in a, in a lower run environment like City Field and it might be a lot of warning track fly balls. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I am wary on that. I mean, I don't think it's something we're going to have to worry about because, I, again, I don't see the fit here clear enough. And there has been no reported interest to my knowledge. I'm sure they've looked into him and done their due diligence, but I think they probably wound up making this same kind of uh, um, uh conclusion on, on Castellanos, right. excuse me, that, that it's just not worth uh, investing in him because there's really no clear fit. Uh, here's an interesting one. Jock Peterson, member of the tribe. Get those pearls to New York. He's kind of also, okay, so like I don't have the, 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 the profile, the bat of ball profiles on Peterson now, but just from a distance. He seems to be in a lot of ways similar to Castellanos in terms of just like the kind of like alignment of of areas that he's good at and not so good at. Like he's not a great defender. His on base his percentage kind of like dipped in 2021. Like he sort of transitioned out of like being a walk guy. I mean, he had that really bad start with the Cubs, which probably anchored like a lot of his numbers. But like he's more of a can of signing to me like who you would just like pair up with canna where one guy is better against righties one guy against lefties but like i don't i don't really know if like that's the most efficient way of finishing this team when like the bats you need to replace right now are like basically like two of your best four hitters the last month of the season who are gone right i mean Baez and conforto are not at all in any way going to be replaced by the triumvirate of Eduardo Escobar, Mark Hanna, and Jock Peterson. So I'm a nod on Jock. I just, I don't think it, 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 if we were in a position where we had Conforto and like, we just needed like a guy who can swing and maybe DH and we didn't have Cano, like, although I, 
like Peterson's probably going to be better than Cano, right? So that's I, I'll redact that, but like I don't know. It it seems to be too much, so I'm a not. I'm like a I, I'm like a, I could be a hot on Jock, but I'm 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 probably on on the not side. There are aspects of Jock as a bench player that intrigue me. Yeah, he hits baseballs hard. Uh. 84 uh, 84th percentile and hard hit percentage 79th percentile and average exit velocity 61st percentile above average and barrel percentage so he finds the barrel a decent amount but you're right in terms of uh the chase rate was down at the 15th percentile k rate at the 29th percentile walk rate uh, respectable 39th percentile a little below half a little below average um and <laughs> terrible outfielder Sixth yeah. percentile and outs above average, third percentile and outfielder jump, even though he's an average runner. Right. Uh so like keep him out of the outfield, maybe stick a first baseman's glove on him occasionally. I, I would like him enough as a pure, pure bench guy, as a guy who could come off the bench and, and pop a homer. Matt stairs. He'd be yeah. a great Matt stairs. He would be that's a guy, by the way. Matt yes, stairs. He'd be a good Matt stairs. I think that he is a guy who has certainly has enough power that could fit that role. Mm. What concerns me about Jock in terms of fulfilling that role, he was set to be paid 10 mil in 2022 and he declined an option with the Braves, a $10 million option. He declined it. He declined it. Wow. So that tells me that Jock Peterson is looking to make more than $10 million and probably wants to play for a team where he's going to get at bats. He's, I would love Jock on the Marlins. I think the Mets should let him go to the Marlins. I think that'd be good. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'm a not on Jock. Right. Because I don't, again, I don't see it. I don't, I don't think that there's a, there's, there's room for what I want him to be. I don't think there's a fit there. Um, Just like I'm a not on Kyle Seager. Who's our next guy. Who I don't think. I'm a not not on Seager too. I just, I, I've, I don't know, man. I think that for one thing, like I just, it just feels wrong to take him after all the time he's had with the Mariners. Like it seems like it would just, it it wouldn't go well anyway. Like that's just the team that he's played for. That's the team he's done well with. Like, yeah. And he's also just, is not that the other thing too, though, is just that like the Mariners are letting him go because like, he's He's just not that good. He's not that good. He's really not that good a hitter. Like the on base is bad. He hits a lot of homers for somebody who, who who doesn't really like put up like high OPS pluses. Like it's 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 weird, I think. Um, and I don't think the defense is anything to write home about either. I think he's a great like you know. I'm sure the Mariners fans love him. I'm not trying to shit on Kyle Seager if we have Mariners fans who listen to us. I just don't really like think he fits at, at all. So yeah, I, there's room on this roster for a starting third baseman. Yeah, he is not a starting third baseman. Yeah, that would be a little bit like, yeah. I think taking him over Chris Bryant would probably be like a more egregious version of like when the Mets picked Todd Frazier over like Mike Moustakis. Unless I'm forgetting another third baseman who was better. But like that was something too where it was just like, all right, like you're going to sign a guy who hits a lot of homers and plays like average defense and doesn't really even get on base that much. Like, fine. Like, go ahead. You're not going to, it's not going to be a huge thing. So that's, so, that's yeah. So we're, we're not on, on Kyle. Yeah. So let's run through our list. We're both hots on Carlos Rodon. We're both knots on Yusei Kikuchi. We're both 
We're both knots on Zach Ranky, but like conditional knots. I'm probably conditional hot on him because I think there's a place where he could fit. Yeah, that's what I mean. Is that we're a right. knot, but like we could be a hot. Yeah, we're I would. Both- I would like him on the Mets. That's that's my thing. Sure, we're both hot on Chris Bryant. We're both not on Nick Castellanos, not because we don't think he's a good player, mm-hmm. and we're both not on Jock Peterson, Kyle Seager. We're pretty much in agreement with all these guys. I think. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean that. Yeah. All right. And uh, hey, let's uh, let's move on to remembering some guys and let's keep in line with. Well, I'm going to let you go first because you said yeah. you had a fun one today. And then mm-hmm. we're going to get into what I had planned for this, keeping in line with what we did last week. I'll explain in a moment. But Jack, who, who are you remembering today? I'm remembering Todd Frazier because I've mentioned <laughs> Todd Frazier. And also we did I did Big Boss last week, so I need to do Big Dog this week. Um, and <laughs> so right. Todd Frazier is my guy. That was I mean, I think a lot about like the big deal signings from the prior ownership group, especially like the big deal signings after 2015 and 2016, like, cause like, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about like the way that they kind of pissed that whole window away and like places where they really especially failed. And that just, I think got really got to me. So um, yeah, I'm remembering the the hoopla around when they signed Todd Frazier and Jay Bruce and expected those two to be like the big bats next to Yohannes Cespedes. I really hope we don't go through a rerun of that anytime soon because it was not a great time. And he also like, I don't know, he he like he kind of just got under my skin, like just from a from a a, a personality standpoint. So that's, that's me. And then as far as the team, the adjacent team, I want to talk about. Um, so there was a moment, this, this, this would require some context where he got in this. Do you remember when the Mets played the nationals, like the nationals came to city field and he got in like this weird, like half beef with Adam Eaton. Yeah. And we basically from their white Sox days. Yeah. And he told, yeah, from their white Sox days. Cause apparently the joke with Eaton is that he's like he's first off he's short and sucks at baseball and two he didn't pay his mortgage and Todd Frazier told him to pay his mortgage so now everyone knows that like the running joke on the White Sox team that they played for was that Adam Eaton doesn't pay his mortgage um it's kind of hard in this economy to do that so I don't know if that's like that funny but the 2016 White Sox were really funny to me watching looking at that roster now because they just did so many things wrong um, and so many bad things happened. They're in a lot of ways, I think, an American League reflection of the 2021 New York Mets team. You have the hot start. You have the expectations uh, that were put on pitchers who couldn't necessarily stay healthy, like James Shields, who they traded for Nino Tatis for that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Latos, who got off to a good start and then really like just went back to being Matt Latos the rest of that year. They also had a huge like like PR fiasco during spring training where like Adam LaRoche retired. Like he just quit baseball, like in March because the White Sox wouldn't let his son like hang out with the team anymore. His like 13 year old kid would like dress in an Adam LaRoche Jersey and like walk around the mound. And like the coaches hated that. They told Adam to stop it. And Adam was like, bet I quit. So like just a lot of stuff that I think if they happened in the Mets, we would have pretty much the same frustrations and the same discourses that we ended up having last year, like just a total fiasco of a team and people didn't seem to like each other at all. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Apparently so, that team that team hated Adam Eaton. Yeah. So Todd Frazier and then adjacently Adam Eaton, because I I I want to just like, you know, put those two together one more time just for fun. See what happened. I'm going similar vein, but more similar vein to last week where we ran down one of the Orioles teams that Buckshow mm-hmm. Walter managed. I'm remembering, I'm remembering now, bear with me. I'm remembering yeah. CJ Nitkowski. Okay. Left-handed reliever from Suffer, New York. Yes. Who wound up, uh, I believe, doing some broadcasting for the Mets. Yeah. Um, played for the Mets in 2001. Did not play for the Mets for very long in 2001. He made five appearances. I'm remembering him because he played under Buck Showalter on the 2003 Rangers, who finished mm. 71 and 91. We're not good. But, oh, boy, there are some names on this team that I, I just so badly wanted to run through. Um, ignoring the fact for a moment that Alex Rodriguez OPS 995 this season uh, oh and was very, very good. Ignoring for the fact that they had, like, prime Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. Who, who that year hit 47 homers and drove in 118. Ignoring for the fact that, But, yeah, go on. Ignoring for the fact that they had a young and productive Mark Teixeira who hit 26 homers. Ignoring that they had a uh, productive Hank Blaylock who hit 29 homers. And he was good. Yeah, that they had dwindling careers uh, Juan Gonzalez who hit 24 and Rafael Palmero who got 650 plate appearances and hit 38 homers as a 38-year-old. Oh, man. Ignoring all that, ignoring this starting lineup, which had some names in it. Yes. Let me they just, had Michael Young, too, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they had Michael Young. They absolutely Michael Young was great. They had Michael Young, who hit 306 that year. Yeah, he was good. Here's some names Okay. on this team. Carl Everett, former Met. Oh, yeah, Carl Everett. Yeah. Who had a 900 OPS in 74 games. Do you, ever read the, you ever read the Carl Everett quote about dinosaurs? Yeah. That's a, it's a phenomenal quote. I'll Wait, let you are, keep reading. I'll let you that, keep going. Yeah. Isn't that a Mookie Wilson quote? No, 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 no. The Mookie quote is, is wholesome and sweet. The Carl Everett uh, quote will make you, like, really upset at the state of, like, American education. You keep going through the names. I'm going to pull up that quote because it's a good quote. It's about okay. dinosaurs not existing. Okay. Doug Glanville. ESPN okay. analyst, he can go and track yes. him down out in center. Lance Nix, left-handed bopper, stuck around in the game for a while. This was when he was 22. Ruben Sierra, 37 at this point, was on this team. Kevin Mensch was on this team. Good name. Another, another uh, Matt Stairs kind of mold bopper dude, bench guy. Uh, Marcus Thames, hitting recently coach. fired hitting Yankees guru. hitting coach. Yeah. Um, Pre-Jeff Mathis, Jeff Mathis, as in Gerald Laird, was on this yes. team. God, that they how did they, they – the pitching must have been – I'm awful. not even – oh, there's some names on the pitching too. Yeah. I'm not even done yet. Mike Lamb was on this team, the guy who got robbed by Gary Matthews Jr. on that insane play that got replayed yep. on MLB Network every day for 25 years. Another former Matt, by the way. Early career Ryan Ludwig, who played in eight games and hit 154. Cardinals good. Guy Cardinals legend, sort of, yep. I guess. Um, <laughs> Chad Cruder, who just got let go as the Mets AAA manager a few weeks ago. Oh boy, as a catcher, thirty-eight years old at that point. Now we move to the pitching. 
Now we can move to the pitching. Uh, Joaquin Benoit, then just 25 years old and, and not pitching into his 40s. Mm-hmm. Chan Ho Park, one time met, pitched for this team. Yes. Um, uh, a fresh and spry 23-year-old Kobe Lewis, who never wound up actually leaving the Rangers as a major leaguer. Yeah. Uh, our, our favorite Cy Young Award-winning knuckler, knuckleballer before he was a knuckleballer, Robert Allen Dickey. Oh, boy. On this team. That was like R.A. Dickey in hell, like yes. pre-knuckleball R.A. Dickey. Um, who else? We had the other Erasmo Ramirez. The imposter, right? The left-hander. Um, we had a future very good closer, Francisco Cordero. Yeah. Um, we had former, I believe, former first overall pick, Todd Van Poppel. That's right. He was a first overall pick. Okay. Well, this, yeah, this explains why they weren't hitting or why There's they weren't winning. CJ Nikowski, who I already mentioned. Yeah. Uguit Urbina. Yes. He was a legit closer and he like got arrested and never played again, I think. Yeah. And just to finish out the list of names, I'm sure there's even more names that I'm just not familiar with that are guyness. Uh, Mickey Calloway was on this team. Mm, yuck. Okay, I'm going to do you one worse and read you that that Carl Ever quote. Um, oh, I by am... the way, Joaquin Benoit was a starting pitcher on this team. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, thank God that didn't go on longer, and they made him a reliever. He was a pretty good reliever. Um, so... Okay, it's going to seem like I'm shitting on Carl Everett for like, uh, you know, being very religious. I don't actually, I think, I think religion is a great thing. Um, I know a lot of very religious people. My whole family is very religious. We are, uh, you know, very devout Jews in this house. I don't actually like have a problem with Carl Everett because he's religious. I have a problem with Carl Everett because he's stupid. Um, he's... So first off, he's, he's made a bunch of remarks against homosexuality, which baseball players, right? Like that'll just happen. Uh, he's lost custody of his children be, as a Met, in fact, because people found like um, and a, a worker at Chase Stadium noticed his daughter covered in bruises. I'm not going to go that much further into like the abusive stuff. If you want to read about that, you can. But like people don't come here to hear me talk about, uh, you know, Carl Everett being an abuser. I'll read the quote. Um, this is from Wikipedia. Everett is quite outspoken with his beliefs and his remarks have been have proven controversial on several occasions. Perhaps the best known of these was his denial of the existence of dinosaurs. He was quoted as saying, quote, God created the sun, the stars and the heavens and the earth and then made Adam and Eve. The Bible never says anything about dinosaurs. You can't say they were there were dinosaurs when you never saw them. Somebody actually saw Adam and Eve eating apples. No one ever saw a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He also derided fossils of dinosaur bones as man-made fakes. In reference to these comments, Boston Globe columnist Dan Shaughnessy dubbed Everett Jurassic Carl. Um, so, who saw, Jurassic Carl. So, who saw Adam and Eve exactly? Because there were no other humans. At the well, time. No, see, that's where you're wrong because it's in the book. So, someone saw it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I I forgot again, like not, I really want to make this clear, like not shitting on anybody who reads the Bible and thinks that that's real, like totally dig it. It's your thing. Um, but like, you know, written testimony, uh, can really be about anything. Um, and 
you know, it probably gives written testimony about dinosaurs existing like the same way, like just, you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, I hope I don't get, I hope I don't get flame for this. Don't, um, don't cancel Jack for reading the dinosaur quote. It is funny. Uh, I, I, I just, every time somebody actually saw Adam and Eve eating apples, no one ever saw a Tyrannosaurus. He is right that no one ever saw a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He's right about that. So I'll, I'll give him that. Um, yeah, well, that's well, all right. We, that should be the title of this episode. Some, uh, no one ever saw a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I think that'd be good. That'd be curious. People question. would have to stick to the end of the episode to figure that's that out. Right. Uh, I think that's probably going to be the end of the episode. We've been talking for like an hour about yes. everything about Buck Showalter and free agents. And we wound up talking about Carl Everett's opinions on the dinosaurs. Uh, episode 64 in the books. Thanks for tuning in. I've been Thank Sam you. Lebowitz. He's been Jack Hendon. Buck Showalter's managing the Mets. Mets fans. Have a pleasant evening. Thank you.